Gospel rest. The first thing you think of when you think of the DC area is, of course, rest and relaxation and peace and serenity and other such synonyms. Just what this town is known for, right? Wrong. Yeah, the problem. What is the problem? Real life is the problem. Real life gets in the way of such rest. Both We have a problem in terms of quantity and quality of rest. In terms of quantity, we just don't get enough. We are a a busy people. Whenever you see the list of, you know, the the worst commutes in the nation, D.C. is up near the top. Whenever you see lists of the the hours that people work, D.C. is up near the top. Then on top of those things, we have family and the stresses of uh, relationships that come with those, and then other duties at school and at church and all over the place. We are uh, an obscenely busy people. Also in terms of quality, though, you know what it's like when those times when you've been busy and then you get to go on vacation and you go away and what do you do the whole first couple of days? You just can't unwind. You try to unwind, but even when you're not at work, you feel a little stressed out. You wonder about what's going on. You wonder about if things are okay at the office. You wonder about all the things that have been resonating in your heart and mind the previous week. We find it hard to relax, hard to be at rest, hard to get away from the strains of finances, relationships, and so on. Pastors are in exactly the same boat. A couple of uh, stats for you here, one from Barna, one from Focus on the Family. Uh, 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every month due to moral failure, spiritual burnout, or contention in their churches. 1,500 a month. Uh, 80% of seminary grads who enter the ministry will leave within five years of being there. So this idea of, of of, of stress and of rest is one that we, we, we all need a solution to. We all long for rest. And this text, in fact, gives us our uh, solution. It's a slightly difficult text. I don't know if you found as we read our way through it that it's kind of hard to follow the logic of it. It's hard to keep track of, of what's happening, hard to uh, follow the, the track that the author is, is laying uh, before us. And the way that we're going to approach it uh, this morning is to look at the three kinds of rest that are described in this text. The three different ways in which the term rest is used. We're going to see God's rest, Israel's rest, and gospel rest. God's rest, which gives us our definition of what true rest is. Israel's rest, which warns us that experiencing rest is by no means a guarantee. And then gospel rest, which shows us how we can experience uh, this this idea of biblical rest. So let's look at these three things together, starting off with God's rest and starting on in verse 4 of chapter 4. There we read that, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. This takes us back to Genesis and takes us back once again to the creation account, where God, after uh, forming this blinding light, decides to put salt in the sea, and he decides to create locks and moors and mud and rocks and animals and bugs and plants and insects, and then he decides to create humanity, and he decides to give us hearts and eyelashes and fingernails, and he does all his great creative work. And then when he has finished this creative work, he rests. He stops. He desists from this creative activity. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. But what does it mean that God rested? It's a strange, strange idea. You know, what does it mean? Because surely it doesn't mean that God was, God was tired and he needed a break. You know, uh, Mark Twain says, man, a creature made at the end of the week's work when God was tired. Um, 
Imagine a conversation, though, between Mark Twain and Isaiah speaking uh, hundreds of years before, saying, have you not known, Mark Twain, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. I love Psalm 121, which speaks of how the Lord never slumbers, the Lord never sleeps. God doesn't get uh, tired. And so when we read that he is resting, we mustn't have this idea that it's like, man, creating the world, creating the cosmos, that that was a big week, big week. Um, Need a little downtime, take a knee, take on some Gatorade, get ready for the second half, okay? That's not what's happening here when the Lord rests. Nor does it mean that he is inactive. It doesn't mean he's tired, but nor does it mean that he is in some sense inactive. Calvin says, it is certain that inasmuch as God sustains the world by his power, governs it by his providence, cherishes and even propagates all creatures, he is constantly at work. If God should but withdraw his hand a little, all things would immediately perish and dissolve into nothing. Remember this idea that we looked at in Hebrews chapter 1 of how Jesus, as God, is the creator of all things, but he is also the sustainer of all things. He is holding all things together by the word of his power. He is not inactive. For he to withdraw his presence for but a moment, then our entire world would just collapse like a house of cards. God is not tired. He is not inactive. And yet he rests. So what does it mean? that he rests. Well, the word itself that's used in Genesis is literally the word Sabbath. The Sabbath day is the day of rest. It means to stop, to cease, to desist, to rest. As God creates the world, we get this refrain. At the end of the day, he says, it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Repeated again and again and again, six times in Genesis chapter 1. And then at the end of the week, having put Adam and Eve in the perfection of Eden, he stops and he says, it's very good. It's very good. And then on the heels of this divine good, he rests. God doesn't rest because he is tired or because he is inactive. God rests when he is deeply satisfied that all is well. There needed to be no additions, there needed to be no corrections, there needed to be nothing added to his world. He was done and he saw it and it was good and so he stopped to be deeply satisfied with his work of creation. He is dwelling in and reveling in the the good, dwelling in and reveling in the very good that is creation. He is deeply satisfied with what he has done and so he is able to stop and rest. See, normally we define rest as a negative thing, or we define it in negative terms. So we rest when the ordeal is over. So when you get home from the office, or when you finally get the kids in bed, or whatever it is that you're hoping to get done, when it gets done, you're able to stop and rest. But the biblical idea of rest is much fuller than that. It's much more a glorious and and positive uh, concept. We don't just uh, stop. Uh, Rest is a, a deep satisfaction that all is well. A deep satisfaction that comes with surveying the scene and being pleased. So I got a letter from my homeowners association, and you know that's never good news, right? You know, they never write to you, dear Mr. Forsyth, have a good day, right? Um, And there was various sins and transgressions were outlined in this letter, including the fact that the siding on my house was not uh, up to scratch and and needed to to be cleaned. So I went out and I looked at the siding and there there is this sort of green mildew stuff. And that's the thing that's most annoying about the Homeward Association. Whenever they write to me, they're right, okay? (laughs) He's going, ah, all right? Um, And so I look outside and there's this sort of green slime on the siding and I give it a scrub and it just, it doesn't even move. It looks like 
the design on the siding. You know, it's like there's no way this is ever going to come up. So I kind of thought about it for a while, and then I remembered a friend of mine who has a power washer. So I called him up, and I was like, hey, man, I need to borrow your power washer. He brought it over, cranked it up, showed me how it worked, and that thing is so much fun. <laughs> right? I stood there, just like blew away the side of my house, okay? Took off the green stuff, took off a layer of dirt below the green stuff. The side of my house is not the color I thought it was. It's like a whole new thing, right? And I kind of just had this satisfaction. It was so good, just kind of like work your way along and it just become instantly clean. And then standing there, uh, that took me an hour or so. And then my friend was like, you know, it, it'll do wonders to your fence too. And I was like, mm-hmm. So I ran away. And it turns the fence from this like, I thought it was dark brown. It wasn't, right? It was just mud and dirt and accumulated over many years. And it's like this new, pristine, light, clean wood. And just the satisfaction of that was just incredible. And that took me a few hours. And then he said, well, you know, you're, you can do your patio with it too. I was like, yes. Right? So I went over, you know, kind of got this, these brick tiles and all the grot that kind of combines in there. And I cleaned all that out. And it's just like, this is so much fun. Right? Went inside that evening. My wife says, you give the kids a bath. <laughs> I'm like, yes. <laughs> the first service was really nervous as to what comes next. <laughs> yeah, uh, wisdom didn't prevail, but my wife forbade it. And so they were spared that ordeal of being power washed in the garden. But the thing I loved about it was... I have a job, and many of you have jobs like this, where you don't necessarily get to see the fruit of your labor. You know, you don't have a product or a kind of end result at the end of the day. And to me, power washing was so glorious because it was dirty, clean, right? Siding, fence, patio, not quite children, right? Uh, That sense of just like, ah, yeah, washing away the grime, washing away the dirt. This looks so much better. This was worth my time. I stood back and looked at it and thought, nice. I was satisfied. And that's much closer to the biblical idea of rest. The biblical idea of rest isn't run around like a maniac and then crash out on the couch in front of the TV and you're at rest. The biblical idea of rest is, no, in the midst of busyness, in the midst of whatever is going on, you're able to stand back and have a deep sense of satisfaction that all is well. That's what it means to rest. A deep sense of satisfaction that all is well. God rests. That teaches us not to define it negatively, but to define it positively, a deep satisfaction that all is well. So let's look at the second use of rest in this passage. And this is Israel's rest. And this extends really from verse 7 of chapter 3 through to verse 19 of chapter 3. Uh, here in verse 7 we read, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. There I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This takes us back, not to Genesis, but to the Exodus. Now, creation account is easy to summarize. The Exodus is not so easy to summarize. You see in the movie Ten Commandments, it's like four hours long. 
okay? This is a, a hard thing to summarize, but here's the, the cliff notes for you. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and God says that he's going to come and deliver them to the promised land, a land of peace, a land of what? A land of rest. And then Moses floats down the river in a basket, and then the Lord raises up uh, this baby to become the man who will lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses' spokesman comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, I won't let your people go. Moses' spokesman says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, again, I won't let your people go. They go back and forth for a little while. There's then a series of plagues and um, a Passover and the parting of the sea, and then he does let the people go, and the Egyptians drown in the sea. And then the Israelites wander around in the wilderness, and they get the Ten Commandments, and they build a tabernacle, and they have a census, and then they wander around some more, and they send spies into the Promised Land, and they make their way to the border of the Promised Land, and they wander around some more, and there's another census. That's pretty much the Exodus right there. And that's what this passage is referring to, (laughs) okay? It's referring to that time when the Israelites were unfaithful to the Lord. This moment of great deliverance that was meant to be theirs as they are brought out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, to be brought into a promised land, into a land of rest. During this time, the Israelites are deeply unfaithful to the Lord. We read that they, verse 8, had hard hearts, that they, verse 8 again, rebelled. Verse 9, that they grumbled and tested the Lord. Verse 11, their hearts strayed and they worshipped idols. We know that Moses himself was unfaithful. And so verse 11 comes, the Lord says, right, that's it, this generation that I was to deliver out of this land of slavery into this land of rest, this generation has been nothing but unfaithful, has demonstrated nothing but unbelief. And so I, I will not allow them to enter the promised land. They will not enter my rest. And so the generation that left Egypt did not. Their bodies were strewn around in the desert, and it was the next generation of Israelites who took possession of the promised land, of the land of rest. Verses 7 through 11 here summarize this in glorious history, and they're originally written by the psalmist to warn his readers against unbelief and disobedience to warn his readers against unbelief and disobedience. And that is why the writer of Hebrews quotes them here, uh, to do the same thing, to warn us about uh, unbelief and disobedience, to say, yes, there is a rest that is from the Lord, but do not think that you are just guaranteed to inherit it. Unbelief and disobedience will forfeit this rest that he has designed for you. He applies this in a more direct way in verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He's saying, understand that there is this rest, this deep satisfaction, but it is easy to fall away from it. And falling away from the Lord is is a subtle thing. It happens incrementally. It happens moment by moment. We see this in everyday life. One of the privileges I have is doing a large number of weddings here at the church. We always do premarital counseling with couples when they come, come to get married. And, you know, no couple ever sits in my office starry-eyed, struck with each other, planning to get a divorce one day. No one plans for that. And yet the percentages tell us um, that a high number of them will. 
Why? Why do marriages fall apart? They don't fall apart in one combustible moment. They fall apart moment by moment, day by day. Falling away from them is a subtle thing. Uh, Butch Hardman always compares it to uh, when there's a, a, you know, an argument or a dispute that goes unresolved in your marriage. It's like just throwing a brick down on the floor between the two of you. And the next day, there's another problem or another tension that again goes unresolved. And it's just like throwing another brick down. And two bricks, it's not that big a deal. There's something there, but you can step over it. You can still talk to each other. Days and weeks turn into years, and the bricks compile till there's a wall between them. A wall of separation between husband and wife, so that you know most of the time, by the time a couple comes to see counsel in a pastoral office, it's humanly speaking too late. And they didn't plan on this from the beginning, but moment by moment, subtly, they fell away from each other till their relationship ended. And that's the warning that we receive here. Through having a hard heart, through rebellion, through little incremental steps, you can uh, have your, your spiritual senses atrophy so that you have wandered away from uh, the Lord. Just like our physical senses. I, I've shared with you a few times about training for half marathons. And, you know, I'm okay at training to get in shape. I am really good at getting out of shape, right? I do that in an extreme and successful fashion. I cannot exercise and eat chips with the best of you, okay? Um, And then one day, and it's funny, you wake up, and it always hits you as a bit of a surprise. One day you wake up and you're like, I'm really out of shape, right? And your wife's kind of like, you know, she she knew, right? (laughs) Didn't didn't hurt her as a surprise, right? And it just starts something up in you, you know? You go from a state of health to a state of, you know, unhealth. Uh, And there wasn't any one moment. It just sort of happened. And that's what happens when people wander away from the Lord. Most of the time, there isn't a big, dramatic, explosive rebellion. It's an incremental, day-by-day decision to pursue other things and not to pursue him. Those who rebelled in Moses' day missed the earthly blessing of rest. God offered them deep satisfaction, and yet they turned away from it. And the author of Hebrews picks up on these words to remind us, before you think, O foolish Israelites, before we look at them and laugh at how they were in the desert, we must be reminded that we are the same as they. We do the exact same thing, turning away from Jesus and incurring a greater loss than they did when we do So, yes, God offers us deep satisfaction, God's rest, but we must remember Israel's rest, that it's not guaranteed to us. Thirdly, and then lastly, so how do we make sure that we don't turn away? How do we make sure that we are guaranteed this rest? And that's where this idea of gospel rest comes in. God's rest, Israel's rest, now gospel rest. Look with me at verse 19 of chapter 3, where we see that the Israelites... um, inability to enter God's rest was because of their unbelief. Yes, they are condemned for their disobedience, but it is primarily their unbelief and their hard, unrepentant hearts that are to blame. But then we read that God has given us another day. Verse 7 calls it today when we can enter in. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. The promise of entering God's rest still stands. 
verse 8 of chapter 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day. This is hearkening back to Joshua who did lead them into the promised land. And if that was the fulfillment of God's rest, we would not be speaking about another day. But yet we learn that the rest of the promised land was just a symbol or a picture or an echo of the greater rest that the Lord was to tell us about. Verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for us. We can enter in. We can receive the deep satisfaction of knowing that all is well. How? As the Israelites were forbidden on the basis of their unbelief, so we are welcomed on the basis, verse 2, of our faith. We have believed, verse 3, have entered that rest. You enter into the deep satisfaction of God by faith, by belief. In whom? In the Lord of the rest. It's his name. The Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus. The rest giver. So that as we, a people who are burdened and who are conflicted and do carry guilt and shame for the lives we've led, are able to come to him, the one who offers us rest. And he does this. He comes and he speaks into those sort of agitated places of our souls, those parts of our souls that are tired and overwhelmed and that are guilty for things in this life and fearful of things to come. And he says those words that we read as our call to worship. Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's this biblical idea describing our sin, describing our shame and our guilt as a burden, a burden that we carry around with us, and a burden that we are unable to remove from our backs. And so Christ comes and he says, give that burden to me. I will take it upon myself. I will enter into unrest so that you might have peace and rest. This is the gospel rest that we learn about in this text. We can still have the deep satisfaction of Christ if we come to him in faith. There's more, though, because we see uh, further in this text, particularly down at verse 10, that belief in Jesus entering into this eternal rest through faith in him is so transformative that it changes our ability to rest today. Look with me at verse 10. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In other words, gospel rest brings something for eternity, but also something for time. Whoever enters God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You see what the verse is saying? That one of the major blessings of the gospel is that the security we have in our relationship with Jesus frees us to have rest here today. And so we used to work to prove that you are worth something. And now Jesus says, you can rest because to me you're worth everything. And you used to work so that others would approve of you. And Jesus says, you can rest because you've got the approval of the king. And you used to work to sort of ward off failure. And Jesus says, there's no failure. When I look at you, it is good. It is very good. Gospel rest that enables us to be at peace today. A deep satisfaction that transforms our practice of rest 
today. I want to close with some practical tips on how do we actually do that, okay? Great, great theory, Pastor. Jesus has saved us. We don't need to fear for eternity. This changes how life should be today, but okay, what do we actually go and do about it? I want to give you two things to increase the quantity of Sabbath time that you take, the quantity of rest time, and then four things to improve the quality of Sabbath time, the quality of your your rest time. First of all, then, two things to increase the quantity of Sabbath time. Are you ready for this? This is insightful and profound. You ready? Increase your Sabbath time by working less. Brilliant. (laughs) Um, on On a different day, I'd preach a different sermon about how work is good. Okay? Our work is good. And you know what? The Lord answers many prayers through hard work and sacrifice. And in different contexts, I've been very forthright about when you're in the office, don't look at Facebook. If you're at work, don't do your fantasy football team, right? You're at work, work, okay? And that's a big thing that I'm all about, okay? However, the gospel is also all about rest. And to increase the, the, the quantity of your Sabbath time requires us to work less. In this area, the amount of hours you work is held up as a badge of honor. How are you, busy? That's the right response. Things have been hectic, working a lot. That, that's sort of like, we nod and give our approval to that. But working less is very often an act of trust, an act of worship, an act of humility, where you say, Lord, you're the God of the heavens and the earth. You're the one who keeps the cosmos spinning. I am not, so I'm going home, right? Um, You're the one who is in charge of my company. You're the one who guarantees its success or its failure. I am not, so I'm going home. Um, This world is not about me and my abilities to sort of, you know, be everyone's, uh, what everyone needs me to be. I can't do that, you can, so... I'm taking the afternoon off. You see, the reason I'm, I'm sort of wanting to challenge you and mess with your stuff a little bit is that the reason we overwork is really all about us. It's actually very, sometimes it is, certainly seasonally, it can be about the organization, the mission that happens. But a lot of the times, it's just about us. It's about being wrapped up in our own ego, our own self, sense of importance, our own sense that, no, I, I can't not go to work because do you know what would happen if, if I didn't show up? Um, you can do this. You can work less. If you're hearing the words but just thinking he doesn't understand, you can do this. Um, I did this about a year ago. I've shared with uh, various of you at different times what kind of stressful 2011 I had. And I realized I need to work less because this is becoming idolatrous to me. And I'm doing this for the wrong reasons, so I'm going to work less. Now, it's funny. The idol in me now is saying, tell them you still work hard. Okay? But I don't work as many hours as I used to because I realized Jesus loves his church. Now, here's the funny thing. Do you know what happened when I stopped? Nobody noticed. (laughs) Nobody noticed. Nobody cared, right? Everything carried on. Life was good. Church was happy, you know. Met with the people I needed to meet with. Prepared the sermons I needed to prepare. God apparently can order his creation without requiring me to sin, right? Um, And so... If you think you can't do it, just try, okay? Try. There are se- Look, I understand. There are seasons of busyness where life is manic. We all have those. But if this is a season that's become your life, then, then just try. try. Try going home and see if anyone notices, okay? And then come talk to me about what happened.
Okay. First thing to increase the quantity of Sabbath time, work less. You see how that's such an obvious point, but it's such an important point because it's a spiritual point. It's about trusting the Lord with our vocations. Secondly, use technology less. Um, there is nothing more oppressive than the blinking red light in the Blackberry, right? You're at home sitting with a glass of wine and it starts to blink and it says, I have email for you. <laughs> and it, it might be important. Right? And maybe you should stop what, doing what you're doing and come and see me, right? And so you go and you check your email and it is work-related and then you go to bed and you're thinking about work and it's just an absolute disaster. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Listen, if something's that important, they'll call. No one sends an email in an emergency, right? You know? Um, uh, so Blackberry. Um, TV too. How much time do you end up just getting in from work, falling on the couch, falling in front of the TV, and watching something you don't even want to watch? You know? Um, like if a neighbor came over, you'd turn it off, you know? Because it's just like some stupid show on TLC, you know? Like, you know... <laughs> You're not even doing this for to relax. So TV's good, watch stuff you like. But so often we just kind of fall into kind of comatose state in front of the TV. Technology is a distraction and it is an enabler. And if we can limit the amount of time we spend on those things, it brings glorious freedom to our schedule, uh, opens up a lot of time, and the glorious sort of uncluttered space to your heart and to your soul that I highly recommend. So increase quantity of Sabbath time by working less and using less technology. Four things to improve the quality of Sabbath time. Um, let's look at these quickly. First of all, take time to worship. This is as obvious as the work class, but take time to worship. What do I mean? I mean, wake up in the morning and take time, prioritize, and put it on your calendar that you're going to meet with the Lord. And you're going to say to him, Lord, this day is opening up before me and you are the God of this day. And I don't need to try to survive it. I can enjoy it because you're here and you're with me and you're working the gospel into these parts of your soul. Taking the time to be at peace and at rest even in the midst of your busyness. As you go into that meeting, pray, Lord, you're the Lord of the Sabbath and you're the Lord of this meeting and I can trust you for how it works out. Working it into the day-to-day fabric of your life. John Hutchinson said in a sermon one time, he had so many great one-liners, and this is one of my favorite ones. I'll need to pause so I don't butcher it. Um, if you can't rest in your work, you'll never be able to rest from your work. If you can't rest in your work, you'll never be able to rest from your work. If you can't get up and worship, if you can't go to the office with a spirit of worship, if you can't go with Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest, the rest giver, if he is not with you as you go, you'll never be able to be at peace and at rest. So take time to worship. Number two, take time to do everything your mother ever told you to do, right? Um, I see all the mothers like, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Three specific things that I mean by this. I mean, sleep right, eat right, and exercise. How deeply spiritual is that? Very spiritual, because we believe in the psychosomatic unity. That means we believe that what you do with your body affects what you do with your soul, and what you do with your soul affects how you are in your body. And it's amazing the difference that looking after yourself will make. When people come to us uh, when they've been bereaved, or they come to us in some situation of, of crisis, we talk with them, we cry with them, and we never leave that time without saying, make sure to look after yourself. Go home, get some sleep, eat some lunch, um, take a walk. Be good to yourself. Be kind to yourself. Your soul needs it. Your soul 
needs it. And so take time to have those things in your schedule. Take time to look after yourself. Third, take time to worship. Take time to do what your mother told you to do. Take time for another deep spiritual thing called fun. Take time for fun. Do you have a hobby? You know, actively, do you have a hobby? If I, you know, on the way out the door, and I won't, but if I said, hey, what are your hobbies? Would you tell me, like, I played Ultimate Frisbee in college? And I'd be like, dude, that was 15 years ago, okay? Um, you know, do you have a hobby that you pursue, that you're actively engaged in, and that you enjoy? I recently bought a mountain bike, and it has been so much fun. I've been heading out and riding around in all the different trails in Reston and going over, you know, mud and rocks and roots and lakes. Uh, lakes? Wow, that'd be impressive. Uh, <laughs> I meant rivers. <laughs> um, all these little streams, it's great. Come back, like, a couple hours later, absolutely caked in mud, right? And just feeling better in my soul, you know? Um, fun. What do you do for fun? Uh, exploring these things is exploring the beautiful creation of God, I don't think it's overstating it to say that if you don't have time for fun, you don't have time to explore God's glory. So you've got to make time. It needs to be done. It needs to be done. What do you do for fun? What do you do, uh, you know, do you have friends? Do you have real friends? Not just people that you pass in the morning, not just people that you would, um, you know, be in a small group with. Do you have people that you get together because you enjoy them? That when you get with them, you laugh a lot and you talk and you just... You know, you cry, but you're together and you're real and you're developing those relationships. Do you have people in your life like that? Do you have time for fun? Take time to worship, time to do what your mother told you, time for fun. And then lastly, take time to do nothing in particular. What I mean by that is there should be unstructured time in your schedule. There should be a night in the week where you don't have anything on. You know, Monday, church meeting, Tuesday, small group. Wednesday, PTA, Thursday, soccer practice, so on, whatever it is. It, shouldn't, you're, it, should, it ought not be that way. There should be time in your schedule where there is, there is nothing particular that you must get done, either for someone else or kind of even the to-do list at home. Some unstructured time for you to be at rest and to be at peace. Um, here's my wife and I do this. This is quite funny. I, I love being spontaneous. My wife hates being spontaneous. So we came up with an agreement. Thursday night, uh, Wednesday night is spontaneous night. Okay? <laughs> so Wednesday night, we can be spontaneous, right? So we kind of both nodded. That's a good idea, right? That, um, yeah, Wednesday night is a night where we don't have anything on. We have no obligations. We have no particular meetings. There's nothing that, that has to happen. And so sometimes we stay in and eat dinner and watch TV, or sometimes we go out, or sometimes we do whatever we want to do. The point is we can do whatever we want to do. And you need some unstructured time in your calendar, in your schedule, to rest. Okay, this town is not known as a place of rest. I think it would be an incredible witness if we could be a people of rest in the midst of this people who care deeply about their vocations, the people who are passionate about many other issues, and yet people who are able to put all of those things down to rest in the satisfaction they have in Christ. We've seen God's rest that is ours. We've seen Israel's rest, that such rest is not guaranteed to us. We've seen gospel rest, that it can be ours through Christ. Who knew, you know, the gospel saves you eternally and it enables you to chill out a little bit. That's good stuff right there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for um, 
again, the candor with which you address us. You teach us about the, the deep satisfaction you had in creation, but you don't hold back from warning us that this deep satisfaction is not necessarily our experience. If we wander far from you, it will not be ours. And so we draw near through faith in Christ to experience this gospel rest, this deep satisfaction in knowing that you see us and say, it is good, it is very good. And Lord, that rest does transform our experience day to day. We pray that we would be a people who witness to this working world by resting in you, our Savior. That we would be able to put these things down and be at peace and be satisfied because all that we need is ours in you. Thank you, Father, for this time. We're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.